Well, take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 9. And if you were here last uh, Wednesday, we launched into the first passage um, of uh, four passages that we're going to be looking at uh, this summer together, uh, the classic follow me passages uh, that Luke, um, of all the gospel writers, highlighted for us. And uh, the reason why we're looking at these uh, follow me passages is we really want to understand that expression, that expression that Jesus, um, that came out of Jesus' mouth more than any other statement while he was here uh, on earth. Follow me. He said it over and over and over and over and over again. And so that should tell us it was very important. Whatever he meant by what he said, whenever he said follow me, we need to understand that. And so uh, that's why we're looking at these passages where, where uh, Jesus rounds out for us uh, this whole concept of following Christ so that we can ultimately answer Christ's call to follow him. Again, the name of the series, Come and Die, is based on uh, a statement, a sentence out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he said this, when Christ bids a man, he calls him, or excuse me, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that was uh, Bonhoeffer's way of, of summarizing uh, the gospel call uh, that came out of the mouth of Christ himself. And so Luke chapter 9 uh, verse 23, and uh, that's what we looked at last week, but we're going to read through uh, verse 26 tonight. Uh, Luke 9, 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Father, we thank you for the promise that you gave us in Isaiah that uh, your word uh, never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it forth. And Lord, there are people here tonight that you have sovereignly brought. You've chosen all of us to be here to hear this specific message. And so I'm trusting you, Lord, that you are going to accomplish your purposes in all of our hearts tonight as we listen to you speak to us through this text. And so we rejoice in what you're going to do through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Two military recruiters one from the Army and one from the Marines, arrived at the same high school on the same day to speak to the same assembly to recruit students to join their particular branch of the military. The principal had accidentally double-booked them. So he apologized for the oversight and decided the best way to resolve the situation was to simply split this 30-minute assembly equally between the two recruiters. And so the Army recruiter went first and took 25 minutes to tell the students all the advantages, all the benefits of joining the Army. He talked about the opportunity to see the world, the adventure, the excitement, the honor, the respect of being um, you know, in the Army, getting a free education, the great pension program. 
But he never mentioned anything about the sacrifice or the commitment involved in being in the army. Waking up at 4 a.m., going on 20-mile marches with 100-pound backpacks, KP duty, the blood, the bullets, the terror of the battlefield. Well, with just five minutes remaining in the assembly, the Marine recruiter slowly walked to the podium, and without saying a word, he gazed over the crowd of students that were gathered there, and after what seemed like an eternity, he said this, I doubt whether there are two or three of you here who could cut it as Marines. I want to see you as soon as this assembly's over. And he went and sat down. <laughs> and when the students were dismissed, a few of them trickled over to the Army recruiter, but the Marine recruiter was surrounded by a crowd of kids who were eager to find out more about being a Marine. I tell that story because I believe it illustrates the two different ways that modern-day preachers try to recruit people to become Christians. Like the army recruiter, some speakers, some preachers try to get people to come to Christ by painting this beautiful picture of the Christian life. And they want following Christ to sound as appealing and comfortable and convenient as possible. So they mention all the benefits of being a Christian, but they fail to mention anything about the sacrifices involved. So they offer Christianity as this irresistible bargain, this incredible deal that a, that a person would be a fool to refuse. And they, they say things like, you know, Jesus will make you happy. You're not happy, and Jesus will make you happy. He'll fulfill your deepest longings. He'll be the friend that you've always wanted. He'll make your life better. And best of all, you don't have to go to hell when you die. You get to go to heaven. I think these well-meaning Preachers come across more like fire insurance salesmen, if you ask me. They tell people all you have to do is accept Jesus as your Savior and raise your hand and pray this prayer and walk down this aisle, sign this card, and if you do these things, you can know for sure that you're a Christian. And so they make it sound like it's this totally risk-free offer. There's no commitment required, and they might as well just add, listen, if you're not completely satisfied... Just send Jesus back in 30 days and we'll give you your money back. I mean, with an offer like that, who wouldn't go forward at some altar call to try Christ? And yet again, there's never any mention of the pain, the sacrifice involved in being a Christian. And what often happens is, it, is a few days after going forward to accept Christ, that new convert discovers that his life didn't get easier, it just got harder. And so they conclude they've been duped by the, the dreamy promise of some well-intended preacher, and they, they're never seen again. They never get baptized. They never become a member of a local church, let alone even attend a local church. Um, they never serve the body of Christ. They never tell anybody else about Christ. And yet they're often recorded as a statistic, right, to prove the success of last Sunday's invitation or... Um, you know, the, the latest evangelistic outreach. How about the Marine recruiter? I think he's an example of how Jesus recruited people to follow him. Or, or more accurately, we could say how Jesus tried to get people not to follow him. And I think somehow we've gotten this image in our heads 
of Jesus trying to coax people to follow him. Like he's, he's again standing at the door of our lives, knocking and pleading with us to let him come in. And granted, there are times in Scripture when Jesus graciously invited people to come to him, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But on numerous occasions in the Gospel, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, we, we see Jesus driving people away from him. And I mentioned this earlier, Jesus was the master of de-invitation. This may come as a shock to you, but Jesus spent more time discouraging people from following him than he did inviting people to follow him. And he regularly reminded people of the, the huge commitment involved, in, involved in being one of his disciples. And he honestly warned people to carefully count the cost, to consider the cost before they followed him. Well, one of the most familiar of these de-invitations, if we could call it that, is found here in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. And Christ's words in these verses sound a note, I think, that is missing from much of modern-day evangelism. And they should cause us to, to think deeply and carefully about how we present the gospel and about what it really means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a true follower of Christ? If you remember from last week, I said that Jesus had brought his disciples to the crossroads. Uh, it was a little play on words that the disciples, along with the multitudes who were following after Christ, they were anticipating this powerful prophetic man would soon lead uh, a revolution to overthrow Rome, and he would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so they were all excited about that, and his closest disciples were fully convinced that he was indeed the Messiah who had been promised in the Old Testament, who would come and deliver uh, Israel from their oppression. And so just when everyone was thinking, this is it, this guy is going to save us, Jesus told them what? Oh, by the way, I'm going to die. And uh, everyone was absolutely shocked. And if that wasn't enough to deal with, Jesus said something else. He essentially said, listen, and if you want to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to die too. Verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, three things, what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, let's put ourselves in the disciples' sandals just for a moment, okay? Okay. I mean, they were faced with, with a very difficult decision. They, along with the multitudes, and we said from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus wasn't just talking to his disciples here, he was talking to the multitudes. And so they all had a choice to make. When he said this, if you want to come after me, you, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. They had a choice to make whether or not to follow Christ which would require them to live a life of denial and discipleship that likely would lead to their death. Or they could walk away from Christ and keep living the way they always had been, which would probably mean their life would be spared. And obviously Jesus didn't want them to walk away, and so he gave them a few things to think about that would compel them to do what he told them to do, to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. And so last week, we looked at these three, what we called compulsory conditions for becoming a Christian. Deny yourself, 
take up your cross daily and follow me. We said denial, death, and discipleship. Those are the three compulsory conditions for becoming a Christian or to be a Christian. And now he follows those up with three compelling considerations for becoming a Christian. In other words, after explaining what a person must do to become a Christian, verse 23, Jesus went on to explain why a person must become a Christian, verses 24 through 26. Have you ever considered what should compel someone to be a Christian? I mean, what, what compels you to be a Christian? What, what, what should compel everyone in the world to repent of their sin and to commit their life to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? What, what should compel them? Well, I think these three gripping thoughts that Jesus wanted his disciples and the multitudes to consider should motivate all of us to be a Christian. And I'm looking out here tonight, and again, I don't know everybody here, and so there may be someone here tonight who is not a Christian. And you know it. And I just want to warn you here that you're going to hear some things and be forced to think about some things that from my perspective will blow away any reason that you've had up to this point in your life for not becoming a Christian, for not repenting of your sinful life, for not committing your life to Christ. I, I, I can't conceive, I can't think of more persuasive reasons to follow Christ than the three reasons that Christ presented here in verses 24, 25, and 26. So what are these reasons? What are these considerations? Let's look at them one at a time. The first consideration or reason that should compel you to give your life to Christ is we could call the paradox, the paradox. Verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This is an interesting verse here. What, what did Jesus mean when he said, for whoever wishes to save his life? In other words, the, the person that wants to hold on to his life, wants to keep it for himself, he, he's concerned about his own comfort, his own security, his own prosperity. He's consumed with his own personal gratification. It's the person that wants to do what they want to do. They want to live the way they want to live. In other words, the person who refuses to deny themselves. Back in verse 23. He says, if you are that person who wishes to save his life, in other words, I'm not, I'm not about to deny myself. I, I, I want to live the way I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. My life is my life. Hands off, Jesus. Notice he says, whoever wishes to save his life will what? What does it say? Will lose it. Will lose your life. And, and this is, I don't think just talking about um, losing your soul, this is ultimately where this is going. This is missing out, first of all, first and foremost, I guess, it is missing out on the true purpose of life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have what? Life and have it to the fullest. And so you're not only going to miss out on the true purpose of life, but ultimately you will lose your soul. You will spend eternity in hell. 
And this is so helpful because I think some people are scared that they might miss out on something if they give their life to Christ. That's why you hear people say, well, you know, I'm going I'm to come to Christ later in life. When, when I, you know, young people say this oftentimes, is, you know, I'm going to wait till I get married and settle down and have kids. And, and typically that's when, you know, there's something about having kids and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, oh, I have kids. I got to start going to church. I got to get serious with Jesus now. And, and so why? We put this off. We put this off. We put this off. Why? Because I want to kind of do my own thing for a while and, and enjoy my life for a little while and then I'll get serious. And so there's people that are just clutching so tightly to their own life. They're unwilling to give it up. But someday it will be suddenly and eternally ripped away from them. And the irony of it all is that they'll end up losing the very thing that they spent their entire life trying so hard to keep. But notice the second part of that verse. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. What does it mean to lose your life for my sake? What did Jesus mean by that? Well, he was simply saying those who freely give up their life to Christ. Instead of living for your own gratification, you live for Christ's glorification. Instead of doing what you want with your life, you do what Christ wants. You deny yourself and you die daily. You you do what he says in, in verse 23. And if you do that, notice what he says. If he, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will what? Save it. You'll get to keep it. Again, not only will you get to enjoy abundant life here on earth, but you will also get to spend eternity in heaven. And this too is ironic, that you end up keeping what you give away. And this is what we call the paradox of, of Christianity. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Again, another irony here. If you love your life, I love my life so much, I'm not about to give it up to follow Christ. Well, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, in other words, you know what? I want to give my life to Christ. You're going to get to keep it to eternal life. Again, this is the paradox of Christianity. The way to living is what? Dying. This whole come and die sounds so ominous, right? Well, thanks for the encouraging summer series, Ken. Come and die. Well, it, it's the paradox of the Christian life. You come and die so that you can what? Live. Probably should have figured out a way to put that in the title somewhere, knowing that that's where this thing is all heading. I'm sure most of you have heard of a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott in my mind, is a classic example of someone who hated his life. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. 
If you're not familiar with the story of Jim Elliott, I'll tell it just quickly. In high school, he was a gifted athlete, had exceptional speaking and acting skills that led some of his teachers to success, uh, uh, some of his teachers to suggest that he pursue a career in acting. Uh, however, his passion was to reach lost people with the gospel. And so he went off to Wheaton College, uh, which in those days, back in those days, in the 1950s, I believe it was, was a, a, just a, um, a hotbed for missionary zeal. And so uh, Jim Elliott's burden for missions was solidified there at Wheaton College. And shortly after he graduated, he heard about a violent Stone Age Indian tribe down in the jungles of Ecuador called the Aucas. Uh, who had never had friendly contact with the outside world. And so Jim Elliott, along with four friends, went against the advice of many well-intended people who were concerned for their safety, and they reached out and made contact with the Aukas in order to share the gospel with them. And in fact, if you've ever watched the movie, it's a very um, compelling, tear-jerking story called The End of the Spear, um, and uh, they knew they were putting their lives on the line. And um, in one scene, I'll never forget in this movie, when they, they, they made a movie out of the story, and he was loading a gun into the plane that they were going to land on this beach. And uh, his wife and son were watching him do this, and somehow they got into a conversation, and what uh, they said was, one of the missionaries said is, you know what, uh, we, we would never shoot them. Even if they came at us with, with their weapons, we would never shoot them. Why? Because we know we're going to heaven, and they're not. If, if, we, if they kill us, we'll go to heaven. If we kill them, if we shoot them, they'll go to hell. So I'm just bringing this for more animals and other things that they maybe had to protect themselves, but it wasn't to use against them. Well, you probably know the story. They ended up being brutally speared to death by the very people that they were trying to save, and many said when it happened, what a, what a needless tragedy, what a foolish waste of life. Until they found Jim Elliott's diary, which contained a scribbled statement that set the record straight. And this is what he wrote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. What a great statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep your own life, you can't keep it, right? To gain what he cannot lose. Not only his salvation, but the salvation of others. See, Jim Elliott and his four fellow missionaries, they understood that their lives were not their own and they were willing to give them up for the cause of Christ. And the deaths of these four, uh, or I should say these, these five missionaries were like five grains of wheat that were buried and they they bore much eternal fruit, and when their bodies were discovered floating face down in the Kurai River, they instantly um, became known around the world as modern-day martyrs. In fact, Life Magazine had them on their front cover. And back in the day, Life Magazine was the magazine that communicated to the world. And so their example sparked this passion for missions among the youth of their generation, and to this day, the story, their story, uh, in, in Jim Elliott's story, is an inspiration to Christian, Christian missionaries everywhere. If you're on the mission field, most every mission will say they read the story, you know, through Gates of Splendor. And that's what, that was the book that they wrote, uh, 
Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote about their adventure, their martyrdom. More importantly, by losing their lives, these five men gained eternal life, not just for themselves, but also for the Akas, which are now called the Wadani, Wadani people, or Wadani, Wadani people, who today are God-fearing, Christ-following people. So these people actually came to Christ. Because if you know the story, after these missionaries died, and, well, Jim Elliot's wife Elizabeth went in with their daughter and uh, made uh, friendly contact with them. And, uh, and it's just an amazing story how God used these guys to, to win this tribe to Christ. The point is they were willing to die so that others might live. And so this first, the first thing that should compel us to give our life to Christ is that we can't keep it anyway. You can try. You can't keep it anyway. No matter how hard you try, you're going to end up losing it in the end. And so that's the paradox. If you give it up, right, he'll give it back to you to use to serve him. Well, that's the first consideration. What's the second consideration? The second reason that should compel us to come to Christ, to deny ourselves, take up a cross daily and follow him. And we'll call this the price. The price. Look at verse 25. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, what, what use is it if we get everything we ever wanted in life, but then die and go to hell? I mean, what, what good will all of it be to us there? Listen, people in hell are not going to be thinking to themselves, man, that was a sweet car I had. Man, that, was a, that was a beautiful house I lived in on the lake. And man, what a, that was a nice boat. What a, what a great, remember that vacation? That was a great vacation. I mean, none of that stuff's going to matter. I find it interesting that both Matthew and Mark record that after Jesus asked this convicting question, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, he posed a follow-up question to clarify what he was getting at. And this is what he said, Matthew 16, 26, Mark 8, 37, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what's the, what's the price of a soul? I mean, once you're in hell, there's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter if you're the wealthiest, most powerful person on the planet, you still won't have enough money or enough power to bring your soul back from hell. Ain't happening. We know that partly because of the story of the rich man in Lazarus. If you want to turn just a few pages to the right to Luke 16, Luke 16, we have this this familiar story that Jesus told about a rich man and a, and, a, and a poor man named Lazarus. Let me read it for you. Luke 16, 19. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. You got this rich man who enjoyed this luxurious lifestyle. 
and he offers no care or concern for this poor man living at his gate. Verse 22, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And so here's a rich man and a poor man, and they suddenly die, and one goes to heaven and one goes to hell. And as we're going to see, there was absolutely nothing that that rich man could do to escape the torment of that blazing inferno. Notice verse 23, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. There's a reason why we believe that hell will be fire being tortured by fire. The scripture says that. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. The most awful thing about hell is there's no way out. There's no way out. You're stuck there. There's no second chances. The moment you die, your destiny is sealed, heaven or hell. And if you end up in hell, there's no one that can pray or pay your way out of hell. You need to stay and suffer there forever and ever. And I find it very interesting that as soon as the rich man realized there was nothing he or anyone else could do to relieve his agonizing condition in hell, he suddenly became an evangelist. Notice verse 27. And he said, okay, if that's the way it is, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. If Lazarus can't come to me, send him to my father's house. Maybe he can go back to earth. Can't come to hell, but he can come to earth. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So he's thinking if this poor guy shows up, this, you know, comes back from the dead and goes up to his father's house and knocks on the door and there's his brothers just having a, you know, partying like they all were all the time. That would get their attention. Whoa, what are you doing here? We thought you died. Well, yeah, I did, but I'm here to tell you that I went to heaven and your brother went to hell, and, and I'm here to tell you he doesn't want you to go there with him because it's, a, it's, it's a, a, a horrible, unimaginable suffering and pain and torment. So repent. This is what the guy's thinking, right? Surely, my brothers, this will, wake, this will be a wake-up call for my brothers. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What was he saying? They have the Bible. They have the scriptures. They, they don't need a guy to come, from, come back from the dead. They, they've got it right there in front of them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. 
And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Hint, hint. What was he thinking of? What was Jesus referring to? His resurrection. He was going to rise from the dead. He was going to come back from the dead. Did everybody repent and believe? No. He says, hey, listen, if they're not going to believe what the Bible says, they're not going to believe it if some guy comes back from the dead. See, this rich man knew his brothers were still living the same way he had lived, and they would surely suffer the same fate if they didn't change the way they were living. And the fact that this rich man didn't want his brothers to join him in hell dispels the common misconception that hell is going to be a one big party where you get to keep on doing what you used to do on earth. He knew what they were doing on, on earth because that's what he did. He just was living up. It was a party. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this, but I have. People have actually said to me that, that they wouldn't mind going to hell because they're just, they're just going to keep partying with their friends. And they actually believe that. Beloved, believe God's word. Hell is no party. It's a place of eternal pain and torment and loneliness. It is the last place you would ever want to be regardless of who was there with you. In fact, in other places of Scripture, the Bible describes hell as outer darkness. Like, so dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And so even if there are other people there and there will be other people there, you won't be able to see them. So all that to say, there is no sin, no pleasure, no person, absolutely nothing in the entire world worth going to hell for. Why? Because our soul, again, what did Jesus say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul, i.e. in hell? Our soul is the most important, precious, valuable thing in the world. All the riches in this world will never equal the worth of our soul. Our soul is of, of infinite value. Why? Because it's eternal. It lasts forever. Riches don't. Stuff doesn't. Job said after losing everything, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Paul reminded the Ephesian Christians in 1 Timothy 6-7, for we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. Reminds me of another parable that Jesus shared. You were in Luke 16. Jump over, jump back to Luke 12. Luke 12 And uh, here in verse um, 13, we see uh, an interesting exchange that Jesus had with this gentleman who came and wanted him to be the mediator, play mediator between him and his brother. They had a, an inheritance, apparently, that needed to be divided between them, uh, and so he wanted Jesus to, to be the mediator. This is verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me.'" But he said to him, man who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you, then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
In other words, even if you have everything you ever could ever wanted, that's not what life's all about. And he tells him a parable, verse 16. The land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So here's this wealthy farmer who had an exceptionally good year. Uh, His land produced this, this bumper crop more than his barns could hold, and so he had to figure out what to do with it all. Notice how many times he says, I, 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 I. In other words, that's all he thought about was himself. And he failed to acknowledge that God was the one who had blessed him with such a great crop, and so he didn't even ask God what Hey, God, what do you want me to do with this? You gave this to me for a reason. What would you like me to do with it? And not only did he think about, he didn't think about God, he didn't think about anybody else. He never considered sharing his excess of crops with anyone else. In other words, he was totally into himself and into his life, and he thought his future was secure. I mean, he's like, hey, I'm set, man. I've got, I got nothing to worry about, man. I can just kick back and relax and enjoy the good life. And as is the case with many wealthy people, he was under the delusion that he was in control of his life. And he failed to realize that God was the one in control of his life. And he could take his life whenever he wanted to. This is exactly what happened. Notice, but God said to him, verse 20, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you've prepared? So at the height of this guy's career, he not only lost his riches, but he lost his soul in hell. Why? Because he spent his life greedily accumulating and hoarding stuff for himself. He cared more about his stuff than he did about his soul. And so the second thing that should compel us to follow Christ is the fact that it's pointless to get everything we ever wanted in life. Hey, I'm going to keep my life. I'm going to do what I want with my life so I can get all this stuff and achieve all these things that I want to achieve. It's pointless when in the end you lose the most important thing, and that is your soul in hell. Well, there's a third reason, a third consideration that should compel us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Christ. We could call this the punishment, the paradox, the price, the punishment. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of, his, and of the holy angels. What did Jesus mean when he said, whoever's ashamed of me and my words? I think he simply meant this, is to be ashamed of Christ means you don't want anything to do with Christ. To be ashamed of Christ's words means you don't want to do what he's told us to do in order to be one of his disciples. We, we, we don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to follow or we don't want to take up our cross. We don't, we don't want to 
follow and obey Him. He says, listen, if you're ashamed of me and my words, in other words, if you're embarrassed to admit to others you're a Christian, or if you avoid associating with other Christians, listen, that may be an indication that you're not a Christian. Again, Jesus wasn't necessarily referring to what we say, but what we don't say. He wasn't just referring to what we do, but what we don't do. Now, listen, all all of us have been in embarrassing situations where we failed to stand up and speak a word for Christ, including me, okay, a pastor. I've been in situations where where I blew it. I didn't didn't take the opportunity, and I, I wimped out, if you will. But if we are true Christians, we will not purposely try to keep it a secret that we're a Christian. A true Christian strives to be bold and courageous and should always be ready to give the reason for the hope that's within us, right? We realize that if Christ endured shame by dying for us, then the least we can do is endure shame by living for Him. Matthew records it this way, Matthew 10, 32 Everyone who confesses me before men, this is Jesus, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. That word confess means to agree with, right? If anyone agrees that I am who I said I am, and they're not ashamed of that, then I'm going to confess, you know, in other words, hey, I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. That's what it means to confess Before men, I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Jesus said, if you do that, then I'll say, I know you as my son or my child. That you, this is one of my true, he'll he'll confess you to the Father. Say, yeah, this is one of mine. This is one of my followers. This is a true Christian. But whoever shall deny me before men, I'll also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. In other words, if you deny me, that you, you deny that, 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 that I am who I say I am or deny that you know me, then when you get to heaven, I'll be like, you know what? I don't know you. Basically, what Jesus said is, I'm going to treat you the same way you treat me. And if we refuse to acknowledge that we know him, he'll refuse to acknowledge that he knows us. When? When is this going to happen? Notice he says, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And according to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8, this will happen when Jesus comes back, Jesus returns and will be accompanied by his mighty angels to punish those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And at that moment, those who were ashamed to take Christ as their Lord and Savior, along with those who called Him their Lord, but never obeyed Him as Lord, I think they will hear Jesus say the most frightful words imaginable, depart from me, I never, what? Knew you. In other words, we don't have a relationship. You said we had a relationship. You acted like, you know, you pretended we had a relationship. But let's be honest, we never really knew each other. And 2 Thessalonians 1.9 goes on to say, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And so the final consideration here that should compel us to follow Christ is that He's coming back. Jesus is coming back and He is going to judge all of us based on whether or not we acknowledged Him or were ashamed of Him. I mean, how many more reasons than these do you need to commit your life completely to Christ? I mean, these are compelling reasons. And again, why did Jesus give these reasons? Why did He give these considerations? Why? Because He wanted us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him. Now, I want to point out something as I close tonight, okay, about the word used to introduce all three of these considerations. And if you're using a New American Standard, I'm assuming maybe it's true if you've got an ESV, NIV. The first word in all three of these verses, verse 24, verse 25, verse 26, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. For, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world and lose, excuse me, loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. That word for indicates the reason for or the result of something. In other words, these are the awful consequences if you walk away from Jesus Christ because you're unwilling to meet the conditions that he laid out to be his followers. What happens? You lose your life, verse 24. You lose your soul, verse 25. And then in verse 26, you lose face. This is what will happen to you if you reject Christ as your Lord and Savior. So, according to Jesus, these are Jesus' words, the decision the disciples and the multitudes had to make whether or not to deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow Him was a matter of life and death. In other words, eternity hung in the balance here. Heaven and hell were at stake. And that to me is the greatest proof that this is not a call to deeper commitment, which is it's so often considered and preached and taught that way, that Jesus was just trying to get the disciples to step up their game, to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me, become a, a, a really devoted follower of Christ. They were already saved, but they needed to really be more committed. No, this is a call to salvation. Listen, heaven is not just for super committed Christians. People don't lose their soul in hell because they haven't stepped up to this second level of commitment. And that's why I believe Jesus was laying down here the entry-level requirements for becoming a Christian. Because when someone truly is convinced that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, then they'll never again be satisfied with their old selfish, self-centered existence. They'll want to commit their entire life to Christ. They'll want to give all that they are for all that Christ is. That was a testimony of another missionary lived a lot, lot uh, earlier than Jim Elliott. His name was C.T. Studd. Have you heard of C.T. Studd? 
He gave up a life of fame and fortune as a cricket player in England to reach people in China and Africa who didn't know Jesus Christ. And it's a great biography, by the way. I'd encourage you to read it sometime, C.T. Studd. But what's interesting is, is it was the words of an atheist that provided the greatest motivation for his life and ministry. And he came across an atheist who said this. Listen carefully. This is an atheist, mind you. If I firmly believed, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another, then religion would mean to me everything. This is an atheist. I would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before sleep sank me into unconsciousness. I should labor in its cause alone. I would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay in my head or seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look to eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. This is an atheist saying if this was all true, if I really believed them, then this is how I would live. This is how it would affect me. He said this in closing, I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season and my text would be this what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul if an atheist can get that (laughs) why can't we as Christians This is a compelling text, and it requires us to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these hard words. Again, not hard to understand, but hard to swallow, hard to apply. And Lord, I pray if there is someone here tonight that has had excuses, reasons why, They've not become a Christian. Reasons why they're holding out and holding on to their own life, not wanting to give up, not wanting to miss out. But they would realize, compared to these reasons that Jesus gave, man, their their reasons are just blown up. And that the smartest, wisest, best thing they could do tonight is to repent, to turn from their life of sin and turn to Christ and to embrace Him by faith alone, believing that it's only through what Christ did for us in His life and His death that we can be forgiven of our sin and made right with You. And that they would from this day forward commit their lives to be a follower of Jesus, an obeyer of Jesus, Um, someone who lives for Jesus and strives to live like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.